Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. I'm just going to pray uh, before the Bible reading, so please pray with me. Dear God, as we come before your word now, we pray that you will speak to us truths which mould and shape our hearts and actions for your glory. Uh, and as Chris comes to speak to us shortly, we pray that you will free us from distractions by your spirit and enable us to fix our eyes on you. Amen. Good evening, I'm Ron. We're about to read God's word. And God's word can be found in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 5 to 13. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread, because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The next reading is in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 21. When the day of the Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Syrian, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, 
they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire and billions of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was the day of the harvest feast in Jerusalem. A time to give thanks for God's provision. Just seven weeks before this, Jesus was crucified. And for a couple of soul-wrenching days, the disciples had thought they'd lost him forever. And uh, ten days ago, he'd gone up into heaven. And while his departure this time felt way less tragic than when they thought they'd lost him forever, there was still a sense of loss, this sense of distance. Their teacher, their, their friend, their king was up in heaven. But they were still here, still on earth. But Jesus had promised something was coming and so they waited and they prayed. The morning of that harvest feast, the streets outside were packed with Jewish pilgrims from across the known world. But Jesus' disciples were in a house, praying together. And then over the hubbub of the street below, a noise. A noise like a a great gust of wind. A noise like a hurricane from heaven itself filled the whole house. And this torrent of fire pouring in and then separating and flames individually landing on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. Each of them filled with the Holy Spirit. People had been filled with the Holy Spirit before. This is not unprecedented. A few special individuals at different points in the Old Testament. But never like this. Never as free as this. Never before had God been as accessible as this. And having received the Holy Spirit, they began to speak other languages and praise God. They spilled out onto the street and a crowd made up of Jewish people from all over the known world gathered together in bewilderment because each heard their own language being spoken. But the theological significance, the historical significance, the eternal significance of this event went over the heads of most of the people there. Some were amazed. Some just figured the disciples were drunk. Some were just perplexed. And the Holy Spirit has been perplexing people ever since. In this short series on the Holy Spirit, so far we've considered our spirit who saves, 
our Holy Spirit who sanctifies, our Holy Spirit who equips, and today we consider our Holy Spirit who confuses, our Holy Spirit who confounds, who bewilders, who perplexes. Honestly, I have so many questions about the Holy Spirit. I mean, why doesn't he get a name? I mean, why not a personal name? Like, Holy Spirit just kind of sounds like more of a description than a name, right? If he always does the Father's will, how does he have distinct agency to be his own person? Right? Why is the Spirit of Jesus distinctly sentient apart from Jesus when our spirits are indivisible from our own being? I mean, that one has to keep you up at night. Yes? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit convict more people about Jesus? Why is my sanctification so slow? Why do I still struggle so much with sin? Why is the church's sanctification so slow? Given that the Spirit is committed to making the church beautiful, why is it still so often ugly? Why does he give such amazing gifts to people that turn out to have such poor character? I could go on and on. So many questions. I've heard the complaint. Maybe you've even made the complaint, but I've heard the complaint that Anglican ministers avoid talking about the Holy Spirit. And maybe sometimes that's true. But when we get up to preach, we really want to make sure that we are sure we're certain of what we're preaching about. And it's hard to always feel certain about the Holy Spirit. But this evening, rather than get frustrated by all the things I don't understand about the Holy Spirit, rather than get weighed down by all the things that are, for me at least, unanswered, I want to propose that maybe some of this uncertainty is intended. Maybe God has been deliberate in not giving all the answers. Maybe it's important to feel confused about the Holy Spirit sometimes. Maybe there's value in the mystery. Probably sounds weird, right? I'm being really airy-fairy, wishy-washy. How could it be better to have less clarity than more clarity? I want to try and demonstrate what I mean through an example. Forewarning, this this is like a long example, like half my sermon example. So you won't know where I'm going for a fair while and hopefully it'll make sense, but who knows? Maybe it won't work. I'm going to present to you a heated theological debate about the Holy Spirit. We started to touch on it last week, but I wanted to save it for this week. I thought it would work a little better. So we're going to deal with it more fully this week. Does the Holy Spirit still give miraculous gifts to followers of Jesus today? Are things like speaking in tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge and wisdom, the gifts of healing, are they still available for Christians today? That's not the debate, does God do miraculous things today? But does he gift particular people with particular abilities to do miraculous things? I'm going to present two different opinions on this, two different schools of thought on this. In reality, it's way more nuanced than just two black and white schools of thought. Uh, There's so much nuance within each school of thought as well, and sometimes they end up sort of crisscrossing and overlapping with each other. And I really don't want to, by presenting two groups, set up like a a winner group and a loser group or an us versus them kind of mentality from all of this. 
but I think it's still helpful to know two broad schools of thought. On the one hand, we have cessationists. Cessationists believe that these gifts, these miraculous gifts, have ceased. Did you get it? Cessation, cease. It's on the name in it. Great. You'll do great on the next one as well. The miraculous gifts existed to accompany the sharing of the gospel, especially by the apostles. So think about what we see in Acts. Miraculous gifts accompany the sharing of the gospel by the apostles. Miraculous gifts gave strength and credibility to the gospel as it was spreading in the early days of the church. So either after the New Testament was written, or after all the apostles died out, or after the church had become more established, whenever you draw that line, the miraculous gifts weren't needed anymore and they started to fade out. Continuationists, on the other hand, you probably already worked it out from the name, continuationists believe the miraculous gifts continue to be available to believers today. I just want to be so clear. I love and respect people on both sides of this debate. I have been so shaped by wonderful people on both sides and there are great, brilliant theologians on both sides of this debate. I was going to listen to that. You don't care. All right. Uh, But you just have to take my word for it. But that means I want to tread really humbly and lightly. I'm really sympathetic to some of the reservations expressed by cessationists that miraculous gifts have at times been faked and used to manipulate people. And I think the apparent use of miraculous gifts at times has been a source of hurt and division in different churches. But for all that, and as much as I hate labels, I align with the continuationist position. I describe myself that way for a number of reasons, but I think most importantly, I'm really convinced that's what Scripture itself teaches. A full discussion to get to that point would take hours, but let's just look at one passage. Last week we read 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul describes miraculous spiritual gifts. But you might recall that the Corinthians had been getting a little too caught up in the gifts that they thought were the most exciting, the most fancy. They started valuing some gifts over other gifts. And Paul wanted to remind them that what makes a gift special is whether or not it's being used at the Spirit's building site to build up the church. In 1 Corinthians 13, the next chapter, Paul famously says that our gifts don't matter if they aren't exercised with love. And then he writes this. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes... What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You can look at the highlighting and see why we're looking at this passage. Prophecies will cease. That's what Paul says. Tongues will be stilled. The gift of special knowledge, that will pass away. But when? When? Paul says it's when completeness comes. When perfection comes. That's another way to translate that word completion. If we just go to the next slide. And there's the debate. When does completeness come? What is Paul referring to? 
And some cessationists have historically argued that Paul is referring to when the New Testament is completed. That's when completion will come. The problem with that position is the Corinthians would have had no idea that Paul could have been talking about the completion of the New Testament when he wrote this letter. It just doesn't make sense. And so this is not a popular theory amongst anyone anymore. Other other cessationists have argued it's when the church is properly established and mature. The church gets the maturity. That's completeness. That's perfection. But if we keep reading to verse 12, this last verse down the bottom, completeness is when we will know fully and when instead of seeing a reflection, we see face to face. I think by far the most natural way of reading that is Paul talking about when Jesus returns and ushers in the new creation, when he brings in the new creation. That's when we will know fully and when we will see clearly. So the miraculous gifts will cease, but not until Jesus comes back. Now, if you're thinking this through, and I'm advocating for a continuationist position, it might raise another question for some of us. If the miraculous gifts still continue, they're still available, why don't they appear to exist equally in different places or in different churches? I think you could just put that on my list at the start of questions about the Holy Spirit I can't really answer, but I have a few thoughts I'll throw out. Uh, Number one, the Spirit loves to work on the frontiers, pushing forward the boundaries of the kingdom. And so I think it's on the frontiers that we're most likely to see miraculous gifts. Number two, I think some churches more earnestly desire and pray for these kinds of gifts. And so they get those prayers answered. But number three, most importantly, The Spirit does what He wants. The Spirit does what He wants. And that actually finally brings me to the point I've been very slowly getting to since the start of the sermon. People on both sides of this continuationist, cessationist debate can fall into the same error, wherever they fall on the spectrum. We have continuationists who say the Spirit will. We have cessationists who say the Spirit won't. And in their zeal and in the heat of debate, people can start to mean he must or he must not. And from either side, we're tempted to put limits on how the Holy Spirit can and will act. We're tempted to try and simplify the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit does what he wants. He's not bound. The Holy Spirit is free. And that feels a little uncomfortable sometimes. See, I'm I'm more comfortable with things that are predictable, domesticated, mechanical. I like to know that if I do this, that will happen. Every time. But the Spirit isn't like that. If you've experienced answered prayers sometimes and unanswered prayers other times, you know that the Spirit isn't just that simple. He's not a formula to be repeated, a textbook to be memorized, or a technique to be mastered. He's a person to be known. Not just known about, but known. In saying that, don't hear me raise personal experience over thoughtful theology here. Good theology, good thoughtful understanding about the nature of God from the Bible, that is essential for truly knowing God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. 
but the best theology won't just remain as head knowledge. It's head knowledge that leads us to deeper knowledge. It's heart knowledge too. It's experiential knowledge. It's relational knowledge. And the Holy Spirit is for that kind of knowing. Not knowing about, but really knowing. Why does God leave us with so many questions about the Holy Spirit? Why is there uncertainty? Because it pushes us into relationship. When we're unsure, when we have questions, we're forced to ask, we're forced to engage, we're forced to seek. We have to wrestle. We have to relate. The lack of clarity we have about the Holy Spirit sometimes invites us into a deeper relationship with God. The Holy Spirit isn't just for knowing about, the Holy Spirit is for knowing. In Luke 11, Jesus is describing God's goodness to his listeners. Jesus describes God's goodness like a friend being good to another friend. Then he describes God's goodness like the goodness of a father to his children. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Those sound like huge promises, right? Like kind of blank check promises. But what are we supposed to be asking for? What are we supposed to be seeking? Jesus answers in the next verses. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is God willing to give us as the ultimate example of his goodness and generosity and overwhelming Father love? What are we supposed to ask for? It's the Holy Spirit. I can remember reading that and so many times feeling like it's a bit of an anticlimax. That's it. If you ask, it'll be given to you, but just ask for the Holy Spirit. Oh. But Jesus is convinced that the Holy Spirit is the greatest of gifts. When God gives his spirit, he gives himself. He gives profound relationship real intimacy, dwelling inside you kind of intimacy. On the night before he died, Jesus had the audacity to tell his broken-hearted disciples that it was good for them that he was going to go away. It was good for them that he was going away. Why? How could that be? He says, because he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them instead. His physical presence beside them was going to be replaced by the Spirit's presence inside them. They were being offered a more profound relationship with God than they ever could have imagined. And that's what we're offered too. I wonder if for you the good news about Jesus 
the Christian faith sometimes just feels like a series of facts for you to know and agree with. So, I'm a sinner. Yep. I'm separated from God. Yep. Jesus died for me. Yep. Now I'm forgiven. Yep. But putting our trust in Jesus isn't just about affirming some facts. You're being brought into God's family. You're being invited to know him. You were given the Holy Spirit so that you could know and experience a day-in, day-out relationship with God. The Spirit isn't just for confusing. That's not the point of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is for knowing. The Spirit offers relationship. And if you are someone who, in hearing this, realizes you don't have a relationship with God, please know that it is offered to you just as freely as it is offered to anyone else. Jesus died for you too. And if you ask him, God will immediately forgive all your mistakes, all your flaws, all your sin, adopt you into his family, give his Holy Spirit to live inside you, to guide you, help you, lead you for the rest of your life. That's on offer to anyone. And maybe you've done that. Maybe you're already a follower of Jesus and yet the Holy Spirit seems unknowable and God just has always seemed kind of distant or maybe at least lightly distant. If that's you, I'd really love a sit-down conversation. We can chat about it together. But let me suggest two things for your consideration. First, are there any barriers Consider, are there any barriers that might be creating a sense of distance between you and God? If there is sin in your life that you are refusing to acknowledge or address, it will start to make the Spirit seem distant. The Spirit speaks to us to convict us of sin. That's what He does. He speaks to convict us of sin. But if we're training ourselves to ignore that voice, of course it gets harder and harder to hear the Spirit. I have a sense that He's close and regularly in contact with us. He is with us to lead us into obedience. So confess sin and ask for His help, letting go of it. Do it again and again and again. But it might not be something overtly sinful that is creating a barrier. This week I heard a concept from the Puritans, who was this group of Christians from a few hundred years ago. Uh, they referred to the deadly effects of innocent delights. I love that. No one talks like that anymore. The deadly effects of innocent delights. Sometimes we can get so caught up in something innocent, neutral, trivial, that stops being innocent and becomes damaging. Sport. Gaming. Netflix. Podcasts. Just reading books all the time. Watching a bunch of trashy TV. Your phone. These are all things that are clamoring for your attention. And if we don't do some weeding in our lives sometimes, 
if we don't reflect on our habits and work out where they are and what might be getting out of control, if we don't do some weeding sometimes, they will start to choke out and attack our openness to the Holy Spirit. You'll become too distracted to notice Him. I want you to look at your last week. Think about your last week. The Spirit was working in your life last week. If you follow Jesus, the Spirit was working in your life last week, I promise you. But what in your life might have made it harder to notice him? What innocent delight might it be worth giving up for a time so that in exchange you can have a gift that Jesus thought was even better than his physical presence? That's my first suggestion. Deal with the barriers. Second suggestion, take Jesus seriously and ask, seek, knock. Let the confusing aspects of the Holy Spirit draw you into curiosity. Let the sense of distance draw you out of apathy and indifference. And go looking for his presence in your life. Pursue the one who pursued you. Pray. Pray to our God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit that you can have more of him in your life. Ask to see evidence of his presence, a sensitivity to his work, an awareness of how he might be convicting you. I spent the last week doing that, trying to write down how I've seen God prompting me, guiding me through his spirit. And it's been a really encouraging week. A couple of weeks ago, John, our youth minister, was preaching on how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and he had this line. He challenged us to raise our expectations of the Holy Spirit. I think if I'm correct, John, I was the first person to get to hear that line aside from being in John's head. He told me in the office while he was working on his sermon. I remember getting goosebumps when I heard it. And it still resonates with me right now. Raise your expectations of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to settle for a distance relationship with God. We don't have to settle for a vague sense that he's in heaven somewhere but far from us. God wants a real relationship with you. So ask, seek, knock, and God will give you his Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you so much that it was your good plan before the creation of the world to make us yours. Jesus, we thank you so much that you were willing to die on the cross for us, to make a way for us to be restored to the Father. Spirit, we thank you so much that you have come to give us faith, to convict us of sin and point us back to Jesus again and again and again, working in our lives for the rest of our lives. We thank you that you dwell in us and we pray that you would dwell all the more closely in us, the more fully. We pray that you would be filling this church community. That the people around us would look and say, yeah, God is there. We pray that it would be for your glory, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. 
St Matt's West Bend Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.